And so welcome everyone and congratulations for completing another full day of practice. A friend of mine says that sitting with ourselves is not for the faint of heart. And um, sometimes I almost consider meditation practice to be walking into a hall of mirrors starring me, myself, and I in all its splendor and glory and all its shame and despair. So it takes a certain type of... um, it's, uh, this is beloved uh, meditation teacher of Bhante Gunaratana. He wrote Mindfulness in Plain English, which is truly a classic. But he says to meditate takes a lot of, he uses this word, gumption. It takes a lot of gumption to meditate. And I, I kind of like that word. <coughs> gumption. Because it takes kind of guts to, to sit with ourselves, to, to be vulnerable, to be real, to um, be present with what's going on in our hearts. Mary Oliver, she writes, she dreamt this poem one night. It's called The Uses of Sorrow. And she says, Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. And it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. Someone I loved gave me a box full of darkness and it took me years to understand that this too was a gift. My old beloved buddy Hafiz, Persian poet, wild man, he says that not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone and yet perhaps three days would do it and you could sit in your closet. (laughs) <laughs> and that'd mean not leaving and you better get a friend to help you with a few sandwiches and you better get yourself a chamber pot no reading uh-uh no writing that would be cheating let's aim for the high 360 degrees detox though the sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated but dear one don't let Hafiz fool you there is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried inside here. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, the idea about a retreat is um, it's pastoral and the deer and the sounds and everything else. And, you know, this is a beautiful environment, the Redwood Forest. But inside the workings of our mind and heart, it might not be very pastoral. I always imagine if we could have like little bubbles coming up during the meditation of what's going actually on, you might not be so surprised. One point in my life, I lived in a Buddhist monastery for many years, and I gave it a nickname because being in the monastery is like being in this Uh, incubator. There's a lot of cooking happening. Same as in retreat. I nicknamed it the shit accelerator because (laughs) lots of things coming up. Lots of things coming up. It takes gumption. It takes gumption to sit with ourselves. But we find that uh, within um, the world, of course within the teachings of the Dharma, but other perennial wisdoms 
found in different religious traditions, philosophical traditions, uh, psychological traditions, shamanistic traditions. There's this journey towards our own hearts, turning into the skid, turning into the pain to find our hearts. It says sometimes with, in the shamanistic tradition, how do the shamans learn how to travel with those that they treat into their hells with them and back? And that's because they have traveled so deeply into their own hells and back. This work that we're doing on ourselves is the most noblest of works, the work of our heart. The Buddha even said it's easier to conquer a thousand soldiers in battle single-handedly than it is to conquer, if you will, your own mind. This is the most noblest of works and um, perhaps at times the most difficult, but also the other question that I have to ask myself, what else is there to do? You know? Franz Kafka once said, you know, you have suffering and you have your choice of whether you want to deal with it or not, but if you don't deal with it, you get two sufferings. So I'm into having less. It's turning to be with what's here. It's a Christian mystic from France, Francis Fenelon, who writes this. He wrote this in the Middle Ages. It has some Middle Age um, language in it that I'm also very fond of. Because as the light of awareness increases, we may see ourselves to be worse than we thought. (laughs) We're amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed we'd harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But while our falls diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter and we can be filled with horror. So it gets better. (laughs) This last line is so beautiful. So he says, Bear in mind for your comfort, bear in mind for your comfort, that we only perceive the malady when the cure begins. We only perceive the malady when the cure begins. This is pointing to the power of mindfulness, the power of awareness, the power of seeing what's here. The cure is beginning because we're becoming aware of what's here. And it does seem like a kind of a radical wisdom. Jennifer Wellwood, she writes, willing to experience aloneness and discover connection everywhere. It's kind of, what? Willing to experience Aloneness, I discover connection everywhere. Turning to face my fears, I meet the warrior who lives within. Opening to my losses, I gain the embrace of the universe. Surrendering into emptiness, I find fullness without end, for each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome begins to transform me. Each condition I flee from pursues me, while each condition I welcome can begin to transform me. It's a radical wisdom. It's turning in. 
That's why we've offered as tremendous allies, not as a punishment, the practices of noble silence, minimal eye contact, no reading, writing, arithmetic, pictures, poems, and reading cereal boxes, looking at the books in the library, and all these different thousands of ways that we can distract ourselves. Of course, we can just be lost in the distractions of our own fantasies as well. But here we're actually willing, it takes gumption, to sit with ourselves, to be present with the workings of our own mind and heart. So tonight I want to um, really speak about a couple of very important, what I consider to be in some ways some of the heart of the Dharma, teachings of the Dharma. Mary Grace mentioned a couple of nights ago this moment when the Buddha actually in his journey to awaken, so he actually was Siddhartha Gautam at that point, traveling from teacher to teacher, learning all of these meditative practices of concentration, absorption, jhana, kapali, absorption. But even though he could center and still the mind, experience deep unification, there was still something still not fully comprehended. So as the story goes, he practiced self-mortification and realized the futility of that. And then finally, restoring his health and coming to sit at this tree and determining, I'm just going to stay here. I've studied with so many different teachers and teachings and it's time for me to make this resolve. I'm going to stay here with my own experience. There's no other place to go. Nothing else to do, no one to be. <laughs> Couldn't resist. And, um, and so yeah, Mary Grace, she mentioned like there's this story or this memory that he had about his father, or was maybe as a farmer, and they were raking the soil of, um, you know, to turn over the soil to, to plant seeds. And it was one of those days where it was incredibly beautiful. So he was marveling on the beauty of the day. And then these oxen and the plow, plow blade going in, and perhaps due to the sensitivity of the moment, could almost sense like the suffering of the blade cutting the worms, and in that moment felt the pervasive type of suffering that exists in this world as well. And then something happened in his meditation that he had not ever done before. Rather than becoming completely unified, he shifted his focus to this coming and going, this mark of impermanence. Something he did was different than whatever he did before. Whatever he learned, there's a, a shift, and that opened powerful realizations about life that are come to know in, in the Buddhist world as the Four Noble Truths. And to me, you know, they're, they're like powerful realizations into the nature of reality, into the nature of life. And their first understanding was of suffering, the pervasiveness of suffering. But also he understood in succession about suffering, its causes, and the path to its freedom, to deep freedom. So when you think about um, suffering... You know, there's, there's a lot of it. A lot of names. Anguish, anxiety, affliction, dissatisfaction, discomfort, discontentment, frustration, misery, sorrow, stress, 
suffering and easiness and ease and happiness and satisfactoriness. There's a long list here. Just the very fact that perhaps we have not fulfilled all of our desires and longings, we have uh, a lot of suffering, of course, in our day-to-day life, never mind the realities of aging, illness, and death. As he deeply began to understand the nature of suffering, it moved into his deep understanding of its causes. And I'd like to say, first and foremost, that the number one cause that he discovered was unawareness or ignorance or illusion or not seeing clearly into the nature of things. This is the root cause of all suffering, according to these teachings of the Buddha, unawareness. And that gives rise to a sense of grasping and craving that I'll go into in a little bit. My teacher, Tampulucero, he used to say about unawareness, ignorance, not seeing clearly, he says that midnight is dark and the new moon is dark and the thickness of the forest is dark, but darkest of all is unawareness. Darkest of all is ignorance. That's why there was so much emphasis on mindfulness as a practice to awaken. Dan was saying, that, you know, the Buddha said that within seven days, if you've practiced very diligently the four foundations of mindfulness, you can awaken. As the Sero would say, my teacher says, if you know the cycle of suffering, you can break it. But if you don't know, you will go around and around. Essentially, this is the teaching of uh, what's called de- dependent origination of Paticca Samapada. But it's this cycle of suffering. But if you understand it, if you know it, you can begin to break, interrupt that cycle. The law of causality. When we have this unawareness, it gives rise to craving. And it's accompanied often with the belief that somehow through what we get will satisfy ourselves, that we will be happy. That we, so it's supporting the sense of looking outside ourselves for happiness. But you know, in our human condition, we have desires to be happy, to, be, to long for this. You know? <clears throat> When that cord was cut many, many years ago, we became separate from our mom. Of course, with some wonderful ways, we put the naked child upon the naked woman or the dad's body, the mom and dad's body, and try to bring some comfort. But that cord is cut, begins this journey, irreversible. And, of course, uh, began much earlier on the moment of conception that was like a candle that was lit at that moment. And we don't know when it's going to get blown out or it will just completely exhaust itself of the wax at some point. But beginning at that process of conception began that irreversible process of aging, illness, and death. But I want to come back to um, longing. And we'll also say that longing or craving is not, and Dan was also mentioning, it's not morally 
wrong. It's just that it's a cause of suffering. Because desire is, is, is not being able to get what you want. But looking at the word longing, I, I've been like just really into looking at longing these days, actually for a number of years now. longing is a powerful force desire it really is a powerful force and it's interesting to note that um, in my studies of desire it has its earliest roots in Latin from the word desidere which has its root from Decidious, and it means from the stars, that we're awaiting to see what the stars will bring. There's some connection about this awaiting with the stars. And I think it's valid as human beings, since that cord was cut, we've been trying to find a place where it's safe again. We can be happy. We can have some ease. We want to be loved. We want to be understood. We want to be happy to be whole, but where are we looking for it? That's the question that I want to really look at. Where am I looking for this? Is it to be found outside of me or inside me? I think part of that fuel of the understanding about unawareness that gives rise to the craving that the Dharma's teaching is that if we hold a belief that we can find this long-lasting happiness outside of ourselves, this will continue to spin that cycle of suffering. This misunderstanding tricks us. It's a trickster. It tricks us into thinking, if I just get this, it's going to be okay. And of course, our whole capitalistic society, everyone is on this because this is making money. You know, Amazon, one click, you got it, it's a rush. Right? One click. Boomo. Shot of adrenaline. An endorphin. But it doesn't last. Then I get to click it again. And it feels good. Click it again. But I want to come back, like, you know, it's I really want to emphasize like our yearning to feel safe, to be loved, to be understood. This is huge for us. But where, where are we looking for this? This is the question. Where are we looking for this? And again, that desire, at times it keeps us wanting, wanting what we can't have. So you can see even the roots of addiction beginning to take place because it feels good in some of the things we get addicted to. Of course, all types of addictions have their tails that come back. But, you know, there's a sense, like, when you're in a world of satiation, I remember once eating this ice cream, and I was, like, just in nirvana. There, there was no Bob anymore. There was just, just the ice cream and bliss. <laughs> I should say cookies. <laughs> but then all of a sudden I saw there was one bite left, and then what the hell am I going to do with my life? I've been cast out of the garden. My cord has been cut. I'm once again solidified in the sense of separation and self and tremendous pain. That's why addiction is so addictive because it makes us feel good. We lose that sense of self for a while. But then it's insidious. It's a trickster. 
The Dharma says that there's no fire hotter than greed. There's no ice colder than hatred. There's no fog thicker than unawareness. <coughs> but again, it's just longing for connection, longing to be whole, the longing to feel part of this universe. And, you know, from time to time, we as human beings do experience this. We may not be aware of it, but I trust this times, and I'll just refer to a Paul Simon song called You Think Too Much. And he says in that song, have you ever experienced a moment of grace when your brain just took a seat behind your face? <laughs> and everything was just sunny, everything was just funny. Have you ever experienced a moment of grace? And I trust that maybe we've had that moment here in this retreat where it was just, it was just like this. There's no worry in that moment of separation or disconnection or isolation because we are the universe. Whether we live or die doesn't matter in those moments of grace. Perhaps that's why Ramana Maharshi had said that when he was dying, his students were saying, please don't go, Maharaj, please don't go. And evidently Maharaj said back to them, where am I going? Someone that had an elevated type of consciousness. And even Albert Einstein, we know, is a great physicist, but he says that the, that, that it's an optical delusion of our consciousness that this separation. This is Albert Einstein. An optical delusion of our consciousness of separation. When you think of it, coming from these stars that produce protons, neutrons, electrons, atoms, and space, of course, we are part of this gestalt, this terrarium. The sense of separation from that point of view does begin to dissolve. And there's even practices in the Dharma, particularly the meditations on the elements of solidity, liquidity, motion, temperature, that the body is comprised of solids, liquids, motion, temperature, and the boundaries of our bodies begin to dissolve, just as the hardness of the head, solids, the liquids, the motion, the temperature, the sense of separation can begin to dissolve these powerful practices within mindfulness of the body. But we all have our stories. Our cords have been cut. I um, was born very, I was born premature in weight, full term but premature. And um, I had to be in an incubator for 10 days. And, and, and uh, my wife says, oh, that explains everything. Um, <laughs> but I had a story for many, many years of that wound and not being held. And there's almost like body memories of my, be- I was on my belly, and like almost like hugging the, the mattress to have some type of contact. So I lived that, with that story for many years. But... Um, I don't know, 15 years ago, I was in a retreat, and, and I had this um, experience um, about my birth, and, and had this experience that, that I was actually connected to a sense of love and kindness. And it was so powerful that my, actually my whole story about my birth has changed. 
But the story was of separation, and the healing was realizing there was connection. I had not remembered that, and I, and I somehow got in touch with a, a real deep memory of connection. But that sense of longing, we have a longing to be connected, but where are we looking for this? Kabir speaks about, um, I, I don't know the poem by heart, but he's speaking about like, like looking for the beloved and, um, and he says, like, you won't find me in the stupas, you won't find me in the shrine rooms, you won't find me at Land of Medicine Buddha, you won't find me if you, have, if you eat nothing but vegetables, you won't find me if you wrap your legs around your own necks. But if you really, really look for me, you will see me instantly. If you really, really look for me. This is the gem, this is the Buddha nature, the possibility of awakening. But again, due to being looking outside this misconception for happiness, this gives rise to a sense of belief that certain types of things can give us a sense of wholeness. So I'd like to read for you um, a very beautiful translation of the causes of suffering from Achanamaro. Englishman, Buddhist monk. He says, This is the noble truth of the cause of suffering, and it is craving. It is craving that is compelling and intoxicating. Anybody know that? Love that description. Craving that is compelling and intoxicating, and it causes us to be born into things again and again. Ever seeking delight now here and now there. And namely, it's the craving for sensual delight the craving to be something and the craving to feel nothing. So this craving, this feeling of wanting something, to have something, to wish for something to happen, and of course it can go towards food, sex, money, fame, prestige, a thousand different things. This is feeling of yearning, craving, hungering for, thirsting for, pining for, coveting, lusting, setting the heart upon it, to be bent upon it, dreaming, fantasizing. It's a powerful, it's compelling, it's intoxicating. And so this notion he points to of, the Buddha speaks about sensual delight, the belief that perhaps certain types of sensual delights can give us that happiness. I spoke about ice cream and Amazon one click and to, it's operations to feel good it's eros <clears throat> rooted in the belief that if I get these things it will make me happy so I have a theme song for this from the Rolling Stones I just can't get no satisfaction <laughs> that is the teaching it's very interesting I was offering these teachings in Taiwan about three months ago and I was speaking about the same thing, and I talked about I can't get no satisfaction Rolling Stones, and everybody's looking at me stone-faced. And I said, do you guys know the Rolling Stones? And not only one person in the room heard of the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I loved it. I said, well, do you know Jerry Garcia? And the people just looking at me like, what? 
I just can't get no satisfaction no matter how much I try and I try and I try. I just can't get no satisfaction. So that craving for sensual light, then the craving to, to, to be someone. Narcissism. I, 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 I. I'm special. It's actually both sides. Inflation, deflation. Both feed the narcissism. And part of this narcissistic way is that I am dependent, or one is dependent upon you. Like, I hope tonight you write me really great notes. Say, this was the best Dharma talk you ever heard in your entire life. (laughs) And I'll read it, and I'll love it. But you know what? It will not be enough. Because I'll need you to write a note tomorrow. (laughs) And then tomorrow night. And maybe next week, maybe send me a postcard. (laughs) It goes on and on. It's never enough. Because the insecurity is so shaken. I am so dependent upon you to make me whole. Yeah. It's a profound suffering. Many we we know about this, right? We, we and but again, I want us to come back like our longing to be seen, to be loved, to be whole is a beautiful thing. It's a human deep longing, but where are we looking for it? And the more that I'm trying to be like somebody else, and of course, everyone else is taken. I want to let you know that right now. Everyone else is completely taken. The only one that has been taken is you. Because I'm leaving myself to be someone else. Or leaving myself to get approval from another. So this is a deep pain for many of us, this leaving ourselves. Leaving of ourselves. So there's a country western song that has the theme song for this. I'm looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> so you, see, you can remember the Dharma this way. Just can't get no satisfaction. I'm looking for love in all the places. And I'll tell you about the next one in a few minutes. <laughs> and that's the craving to feel nothing. Thanatos. The death instinct. Annihilation. You know, um, I never used to think I related to this, but then I began to realize I relate to this big time. Because like, when I look at my deepest longings, I am right back in my mother's womb, and I just don't want to feel anything. I, that's what I see, that part of me that just doesn't want to feel anything, because then there's no self to complain about. It's a sense of annihilation, a sense of disappearance, a sense of I just don't have to deal with this. Even when I was younger, sometimes you used to get crowded. Why don't my parents go and have a good time? Now they got me, and now I have to go deal with this thing. called life. There's thousands of ways that we can numb ourselves, lose ourselves. I love, you know, I, I, I'm, I you know, lose ourselves through television, books. I mean, there's a million different things. And, um, you know, and... I love science fiction. You'll find me watching that from time to time. So I'm not going to get myself down on that, of course. But there's a, there's a million ways that we can just disappear from not being here. So this is this craving to feel nothing. It's actually very acceptable. We call it chilling out. And, there, I mean, you know, I don't want to come down on it, but, you know, 
to really begin to study our mind and heart, is this a place that I'm just kind of just wanting to turn away, to go numb, to not feel? And again, rooted in the belief that, you know, if I just go away and be numb, then I don't have to feel any pain. So the theme song for this is from Simon and Garfunkel. I am a rock, I am an island, and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. Yeah, and I remember listening to and a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. It's like, I don't have to feel you. That's how I interpret it. It might not have been their intention. This craving to feel nothing, this craving to be someone, the craving for sensual delight and how we can get caught with these, with the belief that somehow these are going to fill in that hole. So, we've been talking about cookies. So, this one is dedicated to the cookies. A woman was waiting at an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. And she hunted for a book in the airport shop and bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. But she munched cookies and watched the clock as this gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. (laughs) And she was getting more and more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd blacken his eye. And with each cookie she took, he took one too. And when there was only one left, she wondered what he'd do. And with a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half. (laughs) He offered her half as he ate the other. And she snatched it from him and thought, Oh, brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also so rude and he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at that thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and she sank in her seat and she sought her book, which was almost complete, and as she reached in her baggage, she gasped with surprise, for there was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. If mine are here, she moaned with despair, then the others were his, and he tried to share. (laughs) Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the thief. (laughs) Perception and how we see things. Is it a stick or is it a snake? How we see the world. Who is this self? 
Who am I without my story? So I'll just share a little bit more. This is very important because what gives rise to that sense of unawareness and the cravings to essential delight, to be someone, to feel nothing, is rooted in the sense of self. And in the Dharma, one of the most evocative and sometimes mysterious teachings is his teachings of non-self. And of course, in our Western culture, you know, Descartes has declared early on, I think, therefore, I am the hallmark of Western civilization. But who is this self? I recently heard a talk from Dan Siegel. He said, the self is a plural verb, not a singular noun to be found <coughs> anywhere. But where is this I? Is it in the head hair, the body hair, the nails, the teeth, the skin? The body makes a new stomach every, stomach lining every five days, makes a new liver every six weeks, replaces new head hair every two to five years, except if you're me. The body replaces new eyebrows three to five months. The body grows a new skin once a month. The body replaces with a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 of the cells in your body will die and be replaced with new cells, all while you listen to me read this sentence. Radioactive isotype studies show that the body replaces 98% of its atoms in less than a year. So in other words, at any given moment, the parts of the body are appearing and disappearing because they are atoms. So if you think you are your physical body, which body are you talking about? The body you have today is not the same as it was yesterday. Actually, the, in recent um, biology, it's really becoming quite understood that actually maybe we shouldn't be called human beings. We should be called a human biome because actually 90% of organisms live on, we're about 10% human and 90% organisms. And so um, it kind of challenges our sense of identification. And actually, within one square inch lives 32 million bacteria. My Seto, he was very fond of body meditations. He was the one that taught the 32 parts of the body practice to me. And during one rainy season, he gave 81 Dharma talks every evening on the 81 different families of organisms that live in the body, those that live in the eyes and the nose and the mouth and all over the place, 81 different places. This is actually found in the teachings of the Dharma. It's called Living with the Many. But he would have this poem about each of these organisms that live in the body, and, and it would go, Po aim, po za, po do, i kanda go i, thudo i, thodan thinjain pit i. That's Burmese. What that means is, these organisms eat of the body and they defecate and urinate in the body. Then they couple up with another organism and they grow offsprings. Then gradually they grow old and then they die and thus your body is a cemetery. And then the next night you go on to the next group of organisms. <laughs> Whose body is this? Whose body is this? So it's a very radical teaching, this teaching of Self it rubs up against our status, our roles, our culture, our ethnicity, and it's 
probably just downright un-American. <laughs> yeah, so funny. In Chicago, I was there last year. The last three shows of the Fairly Well Grateful Dead concerts. And right in, right in Chicago, this huge building, one of the biggest ones there, and it says on it, T-R-U-M-P. <laughs> South. <laughs> Who is the self? Alice in Wonderland says that the caterpillar and Alice looked at each other one day in silence, and at last the caterpillar took the hookah out of its mouth <coughs> and addressed her in a languid and sleepy voice. Who are you? said the caterpillar. This was not an encouraging opening for conversation, Alice felt, and she replied rather shyly, I, I hardly know, sir, at present. At least I knew who I was when I got up this morning, but I think I must have changed several times since then. What do you mean by that? Asked the caterpillar sternly. Explain yourself. And Alice said, I I'm sorry, sir, I can't explain myself. You see, because I'm not myself, you see. <laughs> So these practices can be threatening to us. We mean, who, who mean, this is my story, this is me. Remember a psychiatrist friend of mine, he had taken a day long with me with the 32 parts of the body and he wrote me an email a few days later thanking me for the day but then saying, you know, this was a really disabusive experience and then I got a little bit worried because am I abusing my psychiatrist friend? I didn't know what disabusive meant so I went and looked it up in the dictionary. It's actually a great word. And it means like when you, your orientation of the world has been turned upside down. And in some ways, these teachings is a very disabusive practice. It's like, who am I without my story? That is like one of the most radical questions we could ever ask ourselves. But this story that we've gathered together from that moment that the cord was cut and we've had all these impressions and learnings and the development of our ego... When we finally individuate, and if we're wise enough, we see what it is that we've individuated into, and then the rest of, the, of our lives we devote to individuating the individuation that we've individuated into, something like that. Margaret Wheatley, she says, I know that we notice what we notice because of who we are. When we create ourselves but what we choose to notice, and once this work of self-authorship has begun, we inhabit the world we've created and we self-seal. And we don't notice anything except those things that confirm what we already think about who we already are. When we succeed in moving outside of our normal processes of self-reference and can look upon ourselves with self-awareness, then we have a chance at changing. We can break the seal we can notice something new. This is what this practice of mindfulness, it's helping us to see these processes of self-reference and that we can begin to look upon ourselves with self-awareness, we can begin to notice something new. To me, the most liberating aspect of these teachings is becoming aware of the stories that we've told ourselves, that we've believed deeply in and see that they're limited definitions. This is the liberating teachings of the Dharma. 
breaking free of these stories that have enslaved us. It's often referred to the Buddha experience, the unconditioned, and if that's the case, then, then that implies that there was a condition. And the condition perhaps implies, that if we look from a, a, a psychological place, if you will, like our narrative, our stories, and that he saw through all of these stories that are filled with greed, hatred, and ignorance, this belief that somehow I can find happiness outside of me and awakened into a type of a happiness beyond our imagination. The happiness that comes from freedom. The happiness that... Um, Actually, I'll save that. This is actually a powerful reading. It says, No matter how many words arise in your mind, or how many places its musings travel, no matter how many thoughts or opinions it clings to, or how many attachments to how many stories, no matter how many projections and memories or judgments it imagines that are true, there is one single tendril wound round all of the others. And this must be unwound if you want to be free. The last one to drop is the most cherished one. The one that insists that your productions, your fabrications, your constructions are real. The tendril that causes all of your suffering. The one that holds you tightly to a thought called me. Acha Buddha Dasa says, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. To understand this is to heal all illness and sorrows. Let yourself be still without grasping or resisting. The wise person lives with an open and free heart. It does not cling to anything. This is the peace of Nibbana, freedom. It is always here and available when we let go. To me, I think that the Buddha discovered that the happiness, the longing, is to be found within. And that is the becoming free, the severing of this belief that happiness can be found outside of us, whether it's through sensual delight or to be someone special. I feel nothing. And I also just want to say that it is incredibly important in these teachings that we don't bypass our stories and our narratives, our, our life. These are the very things that we work with to begin to understand how they have enslaved us so that we can experience more freedom. They cannot be bypassed. This is a very important part of practice. Because we come with stories. I've shared before, some of you know this, a story of a friend of mine who was very tall and clumsy growing up and um, his father gave him a nickname, and you probably have all heard the children's story of King Midas, everything you touch turns to gold. His nickname was King Minus. <laughs> everything you touch breaks. It's almost like a, in the gut. And of course, I've heard in, in, in you know, with many people, you know, I remember this one woman saying in a mindfulness uh, stress reduction class I was teaching, goes, you know, I'm realizing there's hardly been, I don't remember actually, she said, one day in my entire adult life that I didn't call myself an asshole. And then someone said, well, I don't say that, but I call myself a dummy. So we all have these little things that we say to ourselves that are filled with unworthiness, 
And sometimes we just say things to each other and we don't know the, the pain that it may cause. I remember growing up, I used to love peanuts. My grandma, she'd always have some come on Sunday and she'd have some bowls of peanuts. And my uncle Sidney, like he saw this and he was kind of a mean-spirited guy. He used to say, here comes the claw. Here comes the claw. He's got to on my fingers like a claw. Like, what's the claw? <laughs> every time I go to the peanuts, I'm kind of partially traumatized. Like, oh my God. It's the claw. But there's things that we tell each other that get internalized. I, it was a shaming. I felt shamed. And we and inadvertently in our lives, we get, we get smashed around a bit. A lot. These stories that we've sometimes defined who we are are enslaving in our practice. The liberating teachings of the Dharma is to begin to see through these stories that are imprisoning us. We can't bypass these stories. We cannot bypass them. But we can develop wisdom and understand them and open to deep compassion with them and to begin to transform them and begin to experience possibilities we cannot imagine of deeper, deeper freedom. And it actually can be found, I, I don't want to paint, oh, it's so far off in the future, even in this moment, if we breathe in and breathe out, and in this moment, we completely just be here. There's not any sense of wanting anything, not any sense of pushing anything away. In its place gives rise to a sense of contentment and ease. It's here. It's accessible now. Try it. Just breathe in now. This moment. The freedom, the contentment of this moment. There's not any need for anything or not to push anything away. This is the clarity the insight of the understanding of suffering and its end. Right here. Now just maybe a few moments, but we can taste it. We can have these tastes of freedom. And we think about, you know, and sometimes the word progress is a loaded word in our practice, but you know, in the, one of the teachings of the Buddha, in the Kalama Sutta, he speaks about the criterion and how, how do we know whether we're making progress. And, and it's marked in such a wise way. If what we're practicing is lessening our greed, our hatred, our ignorance, we, we know that this is, this, is, this is the right path to follow. And conversely, if it's leaving us more confused or more greedy or more hateful, then, you know, <coughs> maybe we need to take a look at what we're doing. Of course, while we're practicing, we may experience all those feelings too, but we're beginning to turn our mindfulness, our awareness, our awakening factors to begin to investigate these, to begin to see through these stories that have enslaved us. I've been yakking for a while. I'd like to read to end with a very beautiful verse from the Buddha. This is regarding Nibbana. From Udana. 
Tis there is, monks and nuns, a base where there is no earth, no water, no fire, no air, no base consisting of infinity of space, no base consisting of the infinity of consciousness, no base consisting of nothingness, no base consisting of neither perception nor non-perception, neither this world nor another world nor both, neither the sun nor the moon. Here, monks and nuns, I say, there is no coming and no going, no staying, no deceasing, no uprising, not fixed, not movable. It has no support. This is the end of suffering. So just breathing in and out this moment without any greed, without any hatred in each of the breaths and in its place a sense of contentment and ease open-heartedness and clarity of mind and heart. These are the teachings of all the Buddhas purifying the heart breaking free of the stories that have enslaved us, may we and all beings find the gateways into our hearts and no peace. Thank you for your attention and listening. And um, you know, maybe just um, go into the night, a little walking. We'll call you back for another sit. And uh, I just want to. Well, there's a lot said tonight, I know. And um, may may you hold yourself with tenderness, friending, with great kindness. These the compassionate teachings of the Dharma may may hold you as a deep refuge of safety and peace. Thank you.